from the beginning of time till this day right here, there is a clear number one. There's a clear number one, most respected, most emulated, most studied, most uh, quoted person ever in the history of humanity. Can you imagine that? It's, it's a miracle that we could come up with the number one. When you consider the, the billions of people that have lived, spanning out over an entire globe, spanning out over thousands of years of human history, that we could literally identify a number one. As a matter of fact, I tell you what makes that so incredible that we can get a number one, try to think about a number two and three. I don't think we would ever come to an agreement on, on who's the second most influential, who's the third most respected. I doubt we could agree on that in our culture in our time period, much less add to the debate all the other cultures, all the other time periods to who, who they think. And yet, humanity and history gives us an overwhelming number one, Jesus Christ is the most respected and influential person that has ever lived. You know what? We may not all agree about the same things about him. Obviously, people are gonna, some people are gonna look at his teachings and maybe not agree and not like. Not everybody believes in his miracles. Not everybody believes that he was resurrected. And here we are just two weeks before Easter, a good time to say the resurrection is one of the most provable events in human history. It, it, the overwhelming evidence is that he is alive and that he rose again. But yet, even among non-Christians, even among those who don't believe about Jesus, what Christians believe about him, you still find respect. You still find that they think highly of him. You can find places in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism that will all speak highly, think highly of the person of Jesus Christ. Guys, folks, even people who hate the church, even people who hate Christians, don't necessarily feel that way about Jesus Christ. He clearly is the most respected and influential person that has ever lived. Now I say all that to say this, because you and I are looking for answers. We're always looking for answers, answers to some question, answers to, to some issue. We look around at the people around us taking cues on what's important, how to make life work. Well, you know what? If I was going to look to somebody and try to get some direction, try to get some answers, why not look to the person that both humanity and history has said, here's a number one. And the good news is Jesus speaks on everything. He will talk to you and me about life and death and afterlife, God, prayer, faith. He'll talk about marriage and sexuality, money, stress, worry, your enemies. Hey, listen, whatever you're dealing with, Jesus has a directive. Jesus has insight on how to handle that. But, but today, I, I don't want to talk about all of the things that Jesus addresses but rather the one thing I think Jesus believes is most important. The one thing he thinks is most important for you, for me, connectedness. Connected to God, connected to others. You know, when you do study the life of Jesus, you find him a very 
very relational person. You know, there's all kinds of personalities in the world and some are more relational, some not so much. But remember why we're looking at him. We're trying to get a, a bead on life, a, a direction on life. And what we find in him is somebody that lives in and celebrates the connection, lives in and celebrates the relationship. Even people who come to him and obviously all kinds of personalities come to him. Even people who come to him find themselves getting more relational. They meet Jesus, they want others to meet Jesus. Look at just a quick sampling out of John 1 and, and John chapter 4. Again, these are people meeting Jesus as he's being introduced. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And then just a few verses after that, Philip found, finds Nathaniel and says to him, man, we have found him. And, and then a little bit later, this woman meets Jesus and they engage in dialogue and she returns to town. She left, leaves her water jar, goes back to town and says to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? People meet Jesus, they get to know Jesus and immediately... They want to go tell a family member. They want to go get a friend connecting with God, connecting with others. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see him relating on, on a variety of levels. One thing he's really good at, I'm not sure how good we can be at this, his ability to relate with the large group. I mean, when you look at some of the most well-known stories in the, in the Gospels, it's Jesus relating with not just thousands, tens of thousands of people. And yet, when I say relating, it's not just him standing up in front of people, but he can speak to, he can relate with tens of thousands of people, and it's like he's relating with 10,000 individuals. He knows what's going in their heart. He speaks to their issues. He, he knows what they're thinking about. He answers their questions. He feels compassion. He meets their needs. He feeds them. He can be relating with 10,000 people, a mass, and yet relating with 10,000 individuals all at the same time. Don't know how good we're going to be at that. But as much as Jesus related with the masses, was good at relating with the masses, the overwhelming amount of his life was spent in small group, relating with a small group of individuals. Of course, we all know the, the disciples. He traveled around with those 12 guys, investing in their lives, building in their lives, relating with them a lot of time. And yet, sometimes I think we think that was the only little group of friends that he had. And, and he had others. Man, the gospels constantly show us Jesus and getting away to, to spend time with two sisters and a brother. Not his sisters and brother, but, but these two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, right outside of uh, Jerusalem. And you read the Gospels, and almost every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's trying to find a way to get out to Bethany. Hey, I want to I go eat dinner with my friends out there. Probably from a human perspective, we would say, hey, these three were like best friends in Jesus' life. Folks, life is built Life is lived in relationship. It's lived in those, in that small group dynamic. It's built in those, in those small relationships. And we all need that. Not, not every relationship is going to be super deep and super meaningful and, and super profound, but we need some of them to be. We all need some friendships, some relationships where we can find strength, where, where we can find wisdom, encouragement, help. And not only do we need relationships where we find those things, but don't we need to be those things for some people? Don't we need to be providing that in relationships? You know, I think if you study the Bible, 
you study places, it's talking about relationships and friendships. You'll find that the best kinds of friends are the friends, the relationships that connect you with God and connect you with others. Folks, this is a, a dominant theme of the life Jesus lived, of the life that he modeled. It was so important to him. This is what he was thinking and praying about the night before he was crucified. Now, now think about that. What would you be thinking about, praying about? What would you be doing if you knew the next day you were going to be executed? I'm guessing that knowing you're going to die the next day really hones you in on your priorities. It really helps you think about what is most important. And so we can look at the life of Jesus. We can look at that last night and we can see what was he thinking? What was he doing? And it was all about relationship. As a matter of fact, John chapter 17 gives us a prayer that Jesus prayed that night. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. What is Jesus praying about the night before he's crucified? What is Jesus praying about in the longest recorded prayer in the Gospels? Did you know it's our connectedness? Our relationship with one another and our relationship with God, that's what he's thinking about. That's what he's praying about. Let me show you a couple of verses in the, in the middle of this prayer that kind of, I wouldn't say sum up the whole prayer, but you get a flavor of the prayer with just these two verses. Jesus is praying and he says, I do not ask for these only. What he's saying is, Lord, I'm not just praying for the people in the room here with me. I'm not just praying for the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he praying for when he says those who will believe? He's just praying for you and me. Hey, Lord, I'm not just praying for these 12 disciples here, but I'm praying for those that when these 12 disciples leave this room, go out into the world and spread the gospel and spread my word. I'm praying for those who are going to believe. That's you and that's me. It's the future believers. And what is he praying about for us? that they may all be one, that we may be one. That's pretty connected, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if the way you would describe our relationship is as one. Folks, this is so much more profound than, than a unanimous vote at a meeting. This isn't being in agreement about what we're gonna do next Sunday. It's not being in agreement about something we're gonna do in the church. This is a one in connectedness. This is a one in that we're loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another, helping each other grow in Christ. Lord, I'm praying that they're gonna have that kind of closeness, that kind of connectedness, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Man, Lord, I'm praying that they not only have this close relationship, but they experience what you and I experience in the Trinity. And that in that relationship, they grow in us and they grow in God through that so that the world may believe you sent me. Folks, do you realize what the dynamic Jesus is praying about here and laying down for us? He's saying the connectedness, the relationship that you and I have together in God is to be so profound, so strong, so good that to a watching world, it literally becomes evidence of the realness of God in our lives. The evidence of the realness of God in your life is the kind of relationships that you're building with other believers. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. This kind of relationship does not happen on accident. You don't just stumble into the, oh, look, one day I built these relationships. As a matter of fact, this kind of thing isn't even done just because you have friends that you go to church with. 
Obviously, that would be a part of it. But just the act by itself of going to church with a group of friends doesn't mean this is happening. You do this on purpose. You purposely move into small group. You purposely move into relationship with others for growing in and building this dynamic of loving and serving and praying and ministering and growing in Christ together. Hey, there's a lot to be enjoyed and celebrated as a large group. Man, the Old and New Testament both show us masses, thousands of people coming together for the the preaching of his word, for worship and celebration. There's a lot accomplished in a large group. But you will also find the New Testament, the Old Testament, moving us deeper, moving us beyond that. Here at the Heights, we certainly celebrate the large group gathering. We certainly celebrate what can be accomplished in this moment. But like the scripture, we want to encourage, we want to challenge and motivate. Take one more step into that small group where you're building these kinds of relationships. Why? Remember, what are we doing? We're looking for somebody for direction, insight. How do you make this life work? The life Jesus models is one living in profound, significant relationship with other believers. One that can be described with the word one. One that can be described that the world sees God in how we relate. This is, this is so profound. It is, it is so important. It's so special. I mean, do you realize what, what we have here? I mean, folks, we come into this room, we're coming from all different backgrounds. We like different kinds of music. We like different movies. We have, you know, there's things you like that I don't, things I like that you don't. We don't even all vote the same way. Now, I say all that, think about who your friends are. Think about the groups that you're a part of. Normally, we're a part of groups where there's a real similarity, There's a similarity into the things that we enjoy, the the things that are important to us. And yet we come together, have this kind of relationship, possibly with none of those similarities. Except one great similarity, the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life is connect us to others, grow us up in him with each other. You know, folks in our small groups, we call them life groups. Do you know why? Because that's what we're doing. We're building life together. We're building life in Christ together. That's what we're seeking to do. But you know, as important as that is to Christ, is with that being the model that he gives us, it's really the second most important. There's a more important connection that Jesus wants you to make in life than just with others. The most important connection he wants you to make is with his father. He wants to connect you to God. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, boy, no one's kind of all-encompassing, isn't it? No one, doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious, you're good, you're bad, how you compare to others. No one is going to get to God. No one is going to get to heaven except through me. You know, in our world today, kind of the way, way we value things in America, that's kind of an intolerant statement, isn't it? Kind of intolerant, a little bit exclusive because it excludes other ways. I mean, folks, this verse very clearly says you are not going to get you to God. Your good works, your efforts, your religiosity, that is not going to give you access to God. The Pope is not going to give you access to God. And if he can, I sure can't. Buddha is not going to give you access to God. Mohammed is not going to give you access to God. Karma, 
reincarnation. None of it is going to give you access to God. Only through Jesus Christ do we have access to God. An exclusive statement? Yes. Somewhat intolerant of other ways? Yes. Except that it's not. Because the invitation doesn't exclude anybody. The invitation is open to whoever you are, to whatever you've done, to wherever you've been. Access to God is being made available to you. That is the gospel, by the way. That is the good news. You can have access to God. You can have right standing with God for all eternity. That's what we celebrate as the good news. And you know what makes it really good? is when we understand the bad news. Nobody likes bad news, but there is a bad news. And the bad news is this, folks, without Christ giving us this access, without Christ making this way for us, we're in trouble. The Bible says very clearly that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark of being like God. We're not like his justice we're not like his kindness. You might be a very kind person. You may have been voted most kind in school. Compared to others, you may do really well. But we're not being compared to others. We're being compared to God. And believe it or not, our kindness is not always so kind. Folks, I think a lot of times there's some things that we do that appear to be very loving. They're actually motivated by selfishness. We're expressing that love, we're doing that love because of what comes back to us in that. That's not love. We fall well short of God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, God's kindness, God's, God's rule. We fall short of that. We're just not like God. We're just not like his heaven. And yet we haven't reached the bottom of the bad news yet. It's much worse than that we're not like God. We're actually living in rebellion to God. We're actually fighting for his God spot. You say, well, now wait a minute. I've never tried to be God. I'm not fighting God to be God. Well, you may never feel like that's what you're doing, but, but folks, that's what we're doing in every single sin. Big sin, little sin, however you define it, however you classify it. Folks, in every sin, what we're basically telling God is, hey, listen, I know what to do in this moment. As a matter of fact, Lord, I know better than you. I know better than you what to do in this moment. And I'm in control here. I've got this. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. Folks, we're proclaiming ourselves to be God before God. But we're not God, are we? Man, this isn't our earth. I didn't put it here. I don't own the air. I don't even own the lungs that breathe the air. I didn't call this day into being. But there is a God there is somebody who, who owns this earth. There is somebody who called this day into being. And the Bible says there's a consequence for when you and I say, I can do what I want. The Bible says there's a consequence where you and you and I live like we're God. And that consequence is death. Now, when we hear the word death, normally what we do is we kind of rush right away to six feet under, right? We're, we're assuming that means a, a physical death. But really the bigger issue in that word, folks, is spiritual death. We have spiritually died. That part of us that is created to relate with God, to know God, has died. You think about it, I'm a physical being, you're a physical being. Because of our physicalness, we can relate. 
We can see each other, talk to each other, hear each other, touch to each other. Our physicalness allows physical beings to relate. But God is a spiritual being. That part of me created to relate with God has died. And the Bible says if I move into physical death, still spiritually dead, then that spiritual death becomes permanent. And that's what we refer to as hell. Being permanently, being eternally separated from God. And I can't fix it. How are we going to fix it? We're dead. We need somebody to do that for us. You know, folks, the Bible says that God is absolutely just when he consigns people to hell. And, and do you realize there's no concept of justice that doesn't include goodness and love? God actually is being good. God's actually being loving when people are consigned to hell. That's what's just. That's what's right. But while the Bible says that is true of the Lord, the Bible is also clear, Old and New Testament, that God takes no pleasure in seeing people punished. He takes no joy in seeing people eternally separated from him. His joy is to see you connected, connected to him, connected to his love, his forgiveness, connected to eternal life. And he knows that you and I can't do anything to make that happen. We can't fix our problem. We can't solve our problem. So if it's going to be fixed, he moves. And that's exactly what he does in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says to us in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, I love the word whoever because it includes me. It includes you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hey, there's a new opportunity here. There's a way to fix this. You believe and you can have eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Yeah, that's what we're trying to escape, right? That, that's what I don't want to experience. That's what I don't want. I want to know eternal life, not judgment. I want the opportunity to pass from death to life. But I can't do that. God does it for me. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, by the way, time out. Look at how belief and obey, look how they're used interchangeably. I think there's an important lesson there because I think in our kind of mode of things, we can separate the two. There's believing in Jesus and then there's obeying Jesus. But this doesn't seem to separate it. It seems to be two sides of the same coin. When you believe, if you believe he's God, then you're going to worship and obey him like God. But there seems to be, I can't speak for every culture, but in America, it's, it seems like there's a belief where we can say, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. Died on a cross for sins, rose again. Sure, I, yeah, I'll go for that. Got to believe in something, right? And we can give this mental acknowledgement to something without it ever actually coming to life and flesh anywhere in our lives. And see, the New Testament shows a very different picture. When you believe, you obey. When you believe, it then affects everything you are for the rest of your life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, what's this word? Remains. It's already there. Without there being a Jesus, without him opening up this access, without him working for us on the cross, we have the wrath of God on our lives. We have now have the opportunity to believe, to get out of that status. And if we don't, then the wrath of God remains on us. We still have God's wrath. So folks, something needs to change. We need to change. You know, I hear people a lot of times say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. 
I, I've been a believer all my life. And I, you know what? I think on one hand, I kind of know what they're saying in that. I, I mean, maybe you've said that. You know, as long as I can remember, I've believed these kinds of things. As long as I can remember, I've, I've been in, in church. It's, it's my whole life. But just for technicality here, can we clear something up? Nobody's been a Christian all their lives, right? Nobody has been a believer all their lives. We are born in our sin. Did you hear the words of these verses? Perishing, wrath, judgment, condemnation. That's our status. That's how we're born. That's how we enter this world. That's how we live this life. Something has to change for that to no longer be true of us. And Jesus explains, Jesus describes that change this way. Look what he says in John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again. We throw that term around a lot in church. By the way, that's where it came from. It came from the lips of Jesus. It came from John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, a religious leader, by the way, who Jesus was saying, dude, you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, what do you, what do you mean? Do I need to like, crawl back in my mother's womb? This is weird. And Jesus says the obvious, no, 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 no. You've already got a physical life. You've been physically born. You have a physical life. You can do things of physical value. You have physical relationships, but we're talking about a spiritual relationship. We're talking about living a life of spiritual value. You need to now have a spiritual birth. You need to be born a second time. You need to be born again. Well, man, how's that gonna happen? I can't, I can't cause my own birth. Well, Jesus explains how that's going to happen in the next line, John three sixteen. maybe the most important or, or the most well-known words off the lips of Jesus, the most well-known words, words maybe in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world, God so loved you that he gave his only son. He had to give his son because you were dead. You know, folks, when we say your good works don't save you, your religiosity doesn't save you, we're not saying that because God is stingy. We're not saying that because God's up there in a bad mood. I'm, I'm just not going to acknowledge how hard you're trying. I'm just not going to acknowledge your good. That's not what's happening. We're dead. A spiritually dead person cannot produce anything of spiritual value any more than a physically dead person can produce something of physical value. A a, a physically dead person cannot relate to a physically alive person, right? Am I going too fast? Y'all got that? A dead person can't relate to a live person. Well, a spiritually dead person can't relate to a spiritually live person. So God moves and does a work in your life and in my life in giving his only son. It would take something that important. It would take something that eternal. It would take something that powerful to resolve the sin problem, the death problem in your life and in my life. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You stay in the condition that you were born. There again, there's got to be a change. You know, folks, these verses just demand the question, have you been born again? Has that taken place? Didn't ask, have you been a good church member all your life? Have you belonged to a church? Boy, do you believe Christian things? That's not the question. Have you been born again? Jesus says, you know, when this happens, when you become spiritually alive, I mean, folks talk about connectedness. It so connects you to God 
that the whole relationship changes. You literally become his child. Look what it says in John chapter one. But to all who did receive him, not all do. As a matter of fact, right before this, it says some prefer to stay in the darkness. It's crazy, right? Who doesn't want the light? We love our sin. But when we get tired of that, and when we realize that sin is leading us to our death, and we receive him, we believe in his name, he gave the, this is a profound two words for me, he gave the right. I don't have a right. God doesn't owe me, God doesn't owe you access to himself. We don't deserve it. And yet when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us the right to become a child of God. And the Bible goes on in the story that says, one day I will stand before God and I'll be rewarded as his child. I'll be rewarded as a sibling to Jesus Christ. That's crazy. Because I didn't do anything to deserve that. It was won for me by Jesus Christ. Have you received Christ? Have you been born again? The question points us to a moment in time. The question points us to a decision. And yet I want to say something about that. I, again, I can't speak for all cultures. I, I think in kind of American church, American Christianity, we, we focus on that decision for Christ. Do you know that Jesus never actually invited you to make a decision about him? He never said, boy, here, here, here's all the evidence. Would you make a decision about me? He, he, never, he never asked us to make a decision. You know what his invitation was? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Get, get right here behind me and go where I go. Do what I do. Say what I say. Live like I would live. Give the whole of yourself to the whole of me. That's the invitation of Christ on our lives. But folks, that following has a first step. That following has a decision. Jesus often uses that decision with the word repent. The word repent, so U-turn. You know, I was going this direction, but I took a U-turn and I'm now going this direction. I was going this way where I was in charge of my life. I now turn from myself and give Jesus control. I was going this way where I love sin and I love the darkness. Now I'm going to turn and follow Christ and seek to live in the light and to seek to live in holiness I was going this way where I get to determine who God is and I get to determine what he's like and I get to determine how I get to him. I, I get to determine what God's gonna be happy with. Now I turn and put my confidence in what Jesus says about God, how Jesus says to get God, what's important to God. I now put my faith in Christ. I turn from trusting in the good I've tried to be and put my trust in the good that Jesus is. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you been, think of the term he uses, born again. I like that term because it kind of takes away the vagueness. I mean, you think about it, you're not kind of born. You're not sort of born. You're not mostly born. We've been born again or we haven't. Are you a child of God? Let's pray. Father, I come before you in a, in a room full of people in which I, I believe, I trust that many of us have been born again. We have received Jesus. And Lord, I pray today that, that the opportunity just to hear the gospel again, I, I just pray it fills our heart with gratitude as we remember that moment, that moment maybe recently, that moment maybe decades ago, but we remember that moment where we came to understand the gospel 
We turned from ourself into God. We passed from death to life. We came out from under judgment and condemnation into the position of being your beloved child. Not because of a work we did, but because of what Jesus did. And oh Lord, I pray that this morning as we remember that, that it, it leads us to a heart filled with gratitude. And it just helps us recommit, refresh ourselves in striving to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, I also know that throughout this room are, are people who have not been born again. They've not received you. Lord, I pray that today that would happen in their lives. Lord, not because of an emotion that they're feeling right now, not because I've been convincing. Lord, I don't want them to follow me. I can't lead them anywhere. Lord, I pray right now they hear your voice. They hear you whispering in their ear. They hear you tapping them on the shoulder, telling them they're not born again. And today's the day you want to change that in their lives. Lord, may they hear and feel and sense your love and your grace. You're not telling them that they're not born again because you hate them. You're telling them that they're not born again because you love them. And that needs to change. And you've provided the way for that to change. Oh Lord, for whoever in here today needs to be born again, would you speak to their heart, to their mind right here and right now? I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.